Hello and welcome to Animated Discussions, the latest in our series of WMQ Presents Pilot Podcasts. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week we'll be talking about the 2008 DC animated feature Justice League The New Frontier, based on the 2004 comic by Darwin Cook. What happens in this one, Matt? You want the long version or the short? Let's try short. The Justice League forms. Mmm, sounds seminal. Tell me more. This story is based on the six-issue miniseries that Darwin Cook crafted that not only introduces the Justice League, the classic, you know, big five-slash-seven Justice League uh, from the late 50s, but sets it very much in that time and in the historical context of that period. It's not a completely... You know, golly gee, look how great the world is. Science fiction, futury stuff that you got from your Kaniger and Gardner Fox and all those guys that were coming out at the time. It very much exists in a world where Joseph McCarthy is around and where racism is a major issue. It focuses very much on two characters as your mostly POV figures. Uh, one is Hal Jordan, and the other is Jean Jones, the Martian Manhunter. Um, it follows them and other appearances by Hal Jordan and Superman, and, well, damn it, by Barry Allen, I already talked about Hal Jordan, by Barry Allen and Superman and Wonder Woman and Batman uh, as they face a creature called the Center that is slowly preparing to wipe out humanity. Uh, it's beautifully animated, done in a style that is partially Darwin Cook, partially classic DCAU. Um, it, it takes Cook's very distinct designs and smooths them out a little to work in that uh classic Batman the Animated Series-esque style, which makes sense as Bruce Timm was the executive producer on this, and Cook himself served as creative consultant. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of my favorite comics of all time, and while they have to trim a lot out as it's six double, size, double to triple-sized issues with no ads... Uh, they keep the spirit of what Cook was doing very much intact. So, uh, you know, start, you know, we've kind of gone into the general sum summary of it. You know, what, what do you think of this movie uh, in terms of, you know, you've seen a lot of these, the DC animated films. Uh, you know, I've seen one or two, and if I've seen two, this is now 50% of them. Uh, <laughs> you know, how do you feel about this movie in general? I think it's it's very it's really solid. This was the second of the DC animated films right after a very loose adaptation of the death of Superman called Superman Doomsday, which is not one of the better ones. They did a much more faithful adaptation of that recently in two parts. Um, but this one is really solid. Uh, it's a solid 75-minute length, which is around the, the general length of these movies. Uh, it features a lot of characters, and there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of threads that weave in and out of each other. 
um, which is very much like the book. The book has a lot more in the way of threads. It feels like the book, this sort of anthology or just collection of vignettes that eventually feed into each other in the end. This one's a little more linear than that, but it's still like, okay, so you've got uh, Hal over here and Jean over here and Barry over here and the three separate plot lines sort of feed into each other by the end. It's really well done and generally well voiced. We'll get to that uh, later. Definitely, uh, I I dug it. You know, I, like like you mentioned, it's got it's got this great fifties retro feel to it. Um, you know, the opening credits, the these flourishes of uh, pop art and and jazz that you know make it really stand out compared with comparable animation from the time you know but by the same token i mean this is the same studio they gave you batman the animated series where even the title cards were these like art deco you know chef's kisses those uh those title cards that or the title sequence work in the covers to the miniseries they all were that sort of pop art vibe and they i think at least four or five if not all six appear at one point in that title sequence that's great um yeah no i i felt like this was was definitely a labor of love that sought sought to honor uh the source material you know one thing just kind of as we're getting easing into the general discussion points that struck me you know you mentioned it, it does tackle a lot of of major historical issues from the time or, or at least touch on them, you know, McCarthyism, uh, the end of the Korean War, the dawn of the conflict in Vietnam. Um, you know, you mentioned racism. And one thing I, I remember from reading the original series is, you know, you got a little bit more of, I mean, you get a flash of John Henry uh, in, in the animated. They're really, they dedicate some time to it in what I've read of, of the original story and you know again this is a pro this is a product of i guess the period in which it's set using the classical characters but this is a very white movie it absolutely is and the two principal characters of color don't get any real time the the john henry bits who is the only original character in the book I mean, mm -hmm. They're the only notable original character aside from, you know, side folk. And um, uh, the other principal character of color is Johnny Cloud, who was the one of the captains in The Losers, which not the the ones from the Andy Diggle series, but the original Losers, uh, who features heavily in the prologue to the comic which is completely cut except for a nod to it in one of the television broadcasts and a visual nod to it in another scene that we'll talk about a little more when we're talking about the book later on but there the uh johnny cloud is uh navajo and he's also completely removed from the movie which it's the sequence featuring the losers is not essential to the plot right but it is 
one of the most visually memorable bits of the comic as it's the losers trapped on dinosaur island and this, this whole thing about you know survival and sacrifice and it's really memorable and really cool and it it's a shame that they couldn't have maybe done it as a uh, a dc nation short the little like 10 15 minute shorts that they've done in front of a lot of the more recent films either here or at some point you know in the future you know get the creative team back together to do that opening bit again but yeah that no that would be that would be definitely interesting um you know the other thing i was thinking is this is also you know it's also a very it's also a very male driven movie you know what i mean like we get wonder woman and she's got a role to play but like in the end you get the scene where she's like injured and flying the invisible jet and like it's like rimmed with blood streaks and she's so she's sort of knocked out of the picture for like a couple of minutes to you know I guess fuel the other heroes and we do have not one not two but three tough as nails but still very worried girlfriends in in Lois and Iris West and Carol Ferris yeah oh no doubt I mean this story is a product of the times in which it's set yeah it's a shame we couldn't have gotten uh, Black Canary in here um since she would the uh, Dinah Lance Black Canary, mm-hmm. since her mom would have been one of the JSA who retires rather than deal with McCarthy um, from the beginning, or because there aren't there weren't a ton of female heroes, and I, thinking back to the book, I'm not remembering a. I don't think they really cut any you know strong female characters, weak female characters, or other female characters from the from the film, or from the book into the film. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of using the characters that were there, and they all happened to be a lot of, you know, white cis dudes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> jars, of, jars of mayonnaise. Uh. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, they, they, they do something of a job of differentiating their personalities, but, I mean, they're, they're still all pretty similar in that way. Yeah. But, um, you know, let, let's get into... I'm not trying to hang the problematic banner on this movie or anything like that. Uh, it, it just kind of... It's, 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 it sticks out a little bit. Uh, but, you know, let's, let's go back. How does it compare... We've touched on this a little bit. But how, how does it compare to the original story? It... As I said, it really does keep the spirit of what Cook was doing. And there are a lot of direct moments right from the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does, as I said, cut the the prologue with the losers. And it does cut the entire John Henry plotline, which for those of you who haven't seen the movie or read the book has to do with, uh, an African-American man becoming a hero to people who are being oppressed by the Klan and in the end is tragically lynched. And it is a really painful sequence in the way it's supposed to be. It, it's the, 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 I don't want to, 
spoil it if you haven't read it, and I also don't want to say some of the words involved because you just don't say those words. Mm. But it's really one of the most emotionally affecting parts of the book. And it's I understand why they cut it, because again, it more in the book, other than giving a different perspective, gets an emotional beat out of Martian Manhunter that they find other ways to get in the film. But it would have been a really interesting piece to do. Uh, There also is a little more Batman in the movie than there is in the book. And that's because, you know, he, he's Batman. Yes. (laughs) You're, you're, you're going to cast Batman. You're going to use Batman. Uh, For instance, there's a bit at the end of the movie where Batman brings Ray Palmer to help solve the problem in the book. It's Adam strange who brings Ray Palmer. It's Batman who finds Adam Strange, but you're kind of having this sort of, you know, A to B to C when you can cut out the middleman and just have Batman, you know, go from A right to C. So I see why they did it. It also means you don't have to cast a voice actor for Adam Strange. Uh, But it also makes Adam Strange just sort of being there at the end weird and not terribly useful. I mean, the, the the products obviously serve different audiences. You know, if you are looking to move an animated uh, movie in, you know, on a rack at Target, you put Batman in it. If you want a comic book nerd to be like, oh, my God, you put Adam Strange in a book. Right. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, there's also f- more of the Challengers of the Unknown in the book. They's unknown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're still floating in the, the void after uh, Teen Titans go to the movies, and it's been a couple of years now. Guys, go um, back and listen to episode 25. <laughs> yes. Uh, th- it, there are other little bits and pieces, I mean, lots of bit, bits and pieces that are cut, but the plot hangs together pretty well. They do change the center's motivation a tick, in that it's in the movie, it's just sort of like it's here to wipe out humanity because humanity has fucked up the earth and discovered the atom bomb, and it's time to you know stop humanity. In the book, it's trying to get away from Earth, so it's gather, it's going to Cape Canaveral or wherever to get the things that it needs, the fuels and such it needs to leave Earth. Hmm. But again, that's that's a minor little tweak and that's one of those things that correct me if i'm prove me wrong kids because it has been a couple of years since i've read the book but i'm pretty sure that the center's motivation is a little a little bit different they also cut the bit where when the center blows up a fragment of it is the exact shape of starro the conqueror so the the center is in the end the thing that spawns starro which is kind of cool Yes, yes, it is, and that definitely was not in the movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get the 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 splash of the JL, the newly formed Justice League fighting Starro at the end because mm-hmm. that's the first Justice League story. Yeah, but they don't hint at the fact that Starro is the spawn of the center. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot 
of sort of unmentioned cameos throughout the movie as well. I mean, you, you, they don't say Jim Gordon's name. They don't say Slam Bradley's name, but no. they're both there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great bit when Iris is interviewing a uh, crooner in Las Vegas and you see a poster, a fight poster in the background. Then you see a little bit of the fight itself of uh, Ted Grant, Grant versus Cook. And Cook is obviously a a nod to Darwin Cook and Ted Grant is Wildcat of the JSA. Uh, I mean, Rick Flagg, they don't spend a lot of time describing him, but He's, of course, his, his son is a member of the Suicide Squad, uh, one of King Faraday's. The, the other female character is a Mademoiselle Marie, a French uh, resistance fighter who was one of the war comics characters in the DC comics of that era. Uh, and Alfred's baby mama in the uh, pre-crisis continuity. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Julia Pennyworth, Alfred's daughter who we don't know who her mother is in the current continuity, but in pre-crisis, it was Mademoiselle Marie. Hmm. Um, and she's appeared in Batwoman as both the comic, as Batwoman's sort of major domo tech person and, you know, Batman, and in the TV series as one of her competing love interests. Um, she's a... a, a really good character and i wish we would see a little more of julia um they they cut a cameo from harvey bullock who was one of the few characters who appears in the book who is not period appropriate bullock wasn't introduced until the 80s mm-hmm. but you do see a bullock in the gcpd bullpen and they address him as harvey so it's pretty clearly harvey bullock mm. but it is it's a, f- a solid adaptation that does its best with the time constraints that a movie has that a giant comic book miniseries does not. Certainly. Um, yeah. Now I've only actually read the back half of the original new frontier series. It, it was one of those things I got it for like $5 at a, out of a, you know, bin at a con. <sighs> Yeah, uh, but I like that half, and and you know definitely obviously a lot of the beats uh, do carry over, like the um, the friendship that forms between Martian Manhunter and uh, King Faraday. I love that. Oh, it's it's so pure and good, and uh, the the mentor mentee relationship between Hal Jordan and uh, Ace Morgan from the Challengers of the Unknown that this series very much tries to make happen. Yeah. One of the other changes that they made. Uh, and it's it. This is one that comes from something I mentioned a little bit earlier. In the book, Faraday dies in both the book and the movie, but he dies in slightly different ways. In the book, it's just when the center, which is a telepathic floating island, picture Krakoa if it was really, really evil and could fly and spawn dinosaurs. Um, uh, when the center is invading Martian Manhunter's mind, uh, he basically just brain fries Faraday and that snaps him out of it. In the movie, he is still sort of possessed by the center and knocks 
Faraday away, but then one of the center's tentacles grabs him and starts pulling it down into the maw of a T-Rex, and Faraday takes out a couple of grenades, pops the pins, and goes into the T-Rex's mouth and blows it up. Now, that's a change I can get behind. That shit was gangsta. If you gotta go out, that's how you go out. (laughs) That's how Johnny Cloud dies in the prologue. Mm. he goes into the dinosaurs but like the the pose and everything is exactly the same it's such a cool visual they had to work it in there somehow <laughs> so they they gave it to king faraday and this is let's this is the best king faraday that there is in comics faraday is usually a dick it, it's you know he is the you know spy master jerk who is always you know he's often involved with task force x he was uh the white bishop to amanda waller's white queen and checkmate so he you know often works with the wall Mm -hmm. he is not i mean he's not a bad guy in that in the villainous sense of the word but in the has zero moral compunction and whatever he needs to do to solve whatever problem is in front of him. He is that guy. So he's a Nick Fury type. Yeah, but a, yeah, yeah. More of a jerk, but mostly because Fury gets, has gotten a lot more play. So we've gotten to see a softer side of Fury over the years. And this is the softest side of King Faraday that you'll ever see. Okay. Um, so so let's talk a little bit about uh, Darwin Cook. Uh, Matt, I know that you're a fan. You know, do you consider where does this sort of rank in his, you know, the late great Darwin Cook's uh, oeuvre? Top two. Ooh. It's this and the Parker stuff that he did, the adaptations of uh, Donald Westlake's Parker novels. This is Cook at his you know these cook loves loved god help me loved mm. um this period he loved nostalgia he loved drawing the, the past and he does such beautiful work in this book and tells this story and you could tell how much he loved these characters i mean the 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 parker stuff is probably his number one is probably number one with this at number two but it's one of his longer works as well aside from parker Mm -hmm. cook did a lot of you know ogns and one shots uh he's his first major work was a 64 page i believe it was 64 uh prestige called batman ego he did a great uh, full on full length OGN called Selena's Big Score, mm-hmm. which was a love letter to those Parker books. I mean, there's a character in there who is very clearly uh, Parker in everything but name. But this is a really tremendous book. And it's really worth a read just to see all the things that Cook does with his style in it. The movie does a good job of using light and shadow in the animation, Mm -hmm. similar to the way Cook does it in the book. But there's 
a difference between what you can do in animation and what you can do in a comic. And Cook does some great things in those stills that they do a, a phenomenal job of translating the, the yeah, uh, I, I, it, it's, I loved Batman Ego. I loved Selena's big score and the four issues of Catwoman that Cook did with uh, Ed Brubaker. And those were works that made me interested in seeing what else he did. Mm -hmm. After New Frontier, Darwin Cook became one of my five favorite creators of all time. And there's next to nothing I can think of that's going to knock him out of one of those top five slots. That is something. Um, If you want to know more, Matt did a bonus reading on some of his favorite Darwin Cook stories uh, last year. There's also, uh, when we had uh, Jeff Rugby on uh, last year on WMQ&A, we talked about Darwin Cook a lot. So there's plenty more of that content. Yep. And with there. Jimmy Palmiotti, too. That's right. I knew there was another episode. Yep. And I, I, pa- I couldn't think of it. <laughs> Palmiotti, uh, they, they worked together on uh, Jonah Hex. Mm-hmm. Uh, Darwin did a couple issues of Hex uh, and covers to Jimmy and Justin Gray's uh, Star Spangled War stories with G.I. Zombie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was a fun episode with uh, Jimmy. So let's let's get in, into it a little bit with, you know, the uh, dramatis personae of this uh, of this movie. There's, you know, there's, like we mentioned, you know, the Trinity is in it. Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman are all in it. They've both got big roles, but they're really not the main characters of this movie you know there there are others that definitely uh pull focus and are sort of the povs and uh i wanted to start with uh that good good green boy martian manhunter now y'all know if you've read things i've written on the site i'm a big martian manhunter fan he is one of my favorite dc characters and this is a great martian manhunter story you know, and it, and it's interesting because even though he's he's Martian, you know he he is the POV character. He's you know he's kind of he comes into uh, he comes into this from a distance, and and it, we start with sort of that wacky Silver Age story where he gets teleported to Earth by some random scientist who in this you know version dies in his arms, and he has to we watch him kind of quickly get acclimated to earth life by watching television which is always that is always an adorable trope why is that and that that is that bit with him shape-shifting along with the television mm-hmm. is right out of the comics bit for bit you get the there it's panel to panel where you see him shape change into groucho marks and into bugs bunny it's i was so glad when they brought that into the film mm-hmm. definitely a nice touch uh, you know, I, I was just thinking of all the other times we've seen that in fiction, like uh, Megan from Excalibur, raised on television, Shatterstar, Cable does that thing where he had, like rewires a remote so it changes channels like every five seconds for him or something like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, when Charlie comes back on the show, we'll have to talk about that. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's always a fun kind of uh, trope. And so he adopts the guise of a detective. Uh, after watching all this television and making friendships with guys like Slam Bradley and Batman and, and, and Faraday, uh, 
you know, he's very he's very good at despite the fact that, you know, he doesn't you know, when you actually get to see him in his true form, you know, it's it's obviously it can be scary. He's this like emaciated green thing with red eyes and a and a and a cone head, but he's he's very good at getting people to trust him. Uh you know, almost instantaneously. And I mean, not through any sort of manipulative means, but you know, he's just a very good boy and he's good at solving crimes. He, he absolutely is. And they, the outsiderness of Jean helps give that point of view and allow for statements that at the time, and this is one of these kind of questions about, you know, that I would have loved to have asked Darwin Cook if I had had the opportunity, um, where, I mean, you couldn't have had a character of color at the time in those stories. So the the Martian is the proxy for the outsider. Mm-hmm. And it's very obvious. I mean, he there's whole bits and pieces in it about that cook makes very clear about that. But I I wonder how much he had thought about trying to work in aside from the John Henry bits, more obvious and literal representation versus having to use Jean as a proxy. It's almost like the, uh, the mutant metaphor. It's the Martian metaphor. Yes. But, um, yeah, and in the um, you know the most recent Martian Manhunter series by uh, Steve Orlando and Riley Rosmo, they actually do portray or or Jean uses the the body of a deceased uh, black homicide detective uh, in Colorado. That series was really good. I, I know oh, I know that this is a complete tangent, but uh, you know if you have cause to track that down, uh, you know by whatever uh, means, you know hopefully your local comic shop is still shipping. But, uh, you know, that that really is a series worth reading. It's interesting. Um, the Jean as African-American is something that has become fairly standard thanks to Smallville. Ah. Smallville was the first time where they cast an African-American actor, Phil Morris, to play the Martian Manhunter. And since then, he has been usually african-american he's african-american in supergirl uh he was african-american on young justice in his human form and now in the new martian manhunter series Mm -hmm. so it is a nice little bit of continuity and allows for dealing not just representation but dealing with the the outsider looking into a society that he doesn't quite get and have, you know, it, it's a little bit of the icon uh, uh, from Dwayne McDuffie, who was an alien who came to Earth and the first person he encountered was African-American. So he took that physical form, not realizing everything it entailed. Mm. And it w- wouldn't have worked in the 50s for Jean to be african-american because it would have created a whole set of other problems but granted now it's a whole other set of problems but they're a different set of problems than it was or maybe it's the same set of problems but just couched differently 
than in the 50s now. Uh, I'm going to stop talking about this because I could easily stumble over my tongue and say something I don't want to and something that I don't understand and don't really have the ability to speak to properly. There are, there are smarter men than us that to uh, to speak on that issue 100%. Exactly. Um, yes. You mentioned Phil Morris. Isn't he a voice in this and not Martian Manhunter? Yes, I believe he is. He is someone who pops up as a voice actor quite a bit. I actually think he was in today's new episode of uh, the the 15-minute DC Superhero Girls as Cyborg, maybe? Hmm. Uh, but he's... Uh, oh, wow. I'm just looking at him. He's got a quite a... Quite a, he's always had quite a comic book around him. He was James Olsen in Red Sun, which I have to watch. He was Silas Stone on the Doom Patrol TV series, which I haven't watched yet and really need to. I, I need to watch more of the stuff on DC uh, DC Universe. Um, but yeah, I mean, you just look at his... He was Lego DC superheroes. Um, Green Lantern in the animated series. He was Saint Walker. Oh, wow. How about that? Okay. And Van- Vandal Savage in Justice League Doom, the the one of the upcoming uh, DC animated films from this point. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not seeing him in New Frontier, but I just might be missing it as I'm just scanning IMDb, and it is a wonderfully useful tool, but not the best thing in the world for quick scans while you are recording a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll I'll go ahead and skip ahead uh, to uh, another green. No, I was wrong. Sorry, I was yeah. wrong. He's King Faraday. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and was Imperiax on the Legion of Superheroes cartoon back to back. Yeah, he's he's a great voice. He's a really solid voice actor, and yeah, he does a great job as Faraday. I, yeah. I agree. Uh, okay, so let's move on to another green boy who is is not as good and actually doesn't spend that much time wearing green uh, in this movie. What do we think about Hal Jordan? Uh, and you can take that to mean in general or you can take that to mean within the context of, of this movie. Uh, but, you know, of all the DC heroes in general, he is very much, how to put this, a cock? <laughs> yes. There, people either... Stan Hal Jordan to a frightening degree <laughs> or think he is kind of lame. I, I am I, I've never particularly liked Hal Jordan. He's never he is my fifth or sixth favorite Green Lantern from Earth. And if you start factoring in alien Green Lanterns, he falls even farther down the list. <laughs> um uh, I mean, and that's partially. I came up in the '90s, so I am a. Uh, I love Kyle Rayner, um, and John Stewart. You know, the Justice League animated series. You know, really got me to love John Stewart, and a lot of the modern Green Lanterns, Jessica Cruz, um, the new Joe Mullane from Far Sector. Uh, yeah, I think Hal far- starts falling in around there. Uh, <laughs> I know there are people who love Guy Gardner. I'm not a big Gardner fan, but Hal is... This is the era where Hal Jordan works, in a way, because he is the 
the man of the late 50s, early 60s. He's a test pilot. He's looking to the stars. This is like those superheroes of the real world were of that time were test pilots. There's a subplot in the book that was cut from the film where he uh, his dad was friends with Chuck Yeager and he knew Chuck Yeager. Hmm. Uh, again, wasn't necessarily important for the, uh, you know, the, the overall thrust, so that it was trimmed. But they do here at least give him a little more space to grow. I mean, his the bits with him in the Korean War at least give you some context. They make him it's, a little bit more sympathetic. Yes, yes, he's not as much of an arrogant. Dick bag. Oh, he is as much of an arrogant dick bag. Um, he and, hit on his boss during a job interview. Oh yeah, he is absolutely the worst when it comes to his relationships with women. It's no wonder he and Oliver Queen get along <laughs> because they are both terrible with relationships. They both that their period their this period of their lives they are both really really terrible Hal hasn't ever really gotten over that either Oliver at least sort of tries to settle down with Black Canary Hal is just awful a cat in a bound a cat in a bounder Mar- married to his job <laughs> yes absolutely and I mean Carol Ferris is the closest thing he's ever had to a you know a true love and their whole thing is just a mess with the, you know, the star sapphires and all that. And the less said about Hal's relationship with Aregia is the, the better, the, the, the possibly maybe underage green lantern, but not really because her species ages differently than humans or something. It's, it's uncomfortable one way or the other. Gross. Yes. It is absolutely gross, and it's one of those things where they've tried to lampshade it and make him less awful because of how her... I think it has something to do with the way her species ages, but it's still like, you're... Ew. Just... Ew. uh, I'm smiling because I'm thinking of... Uh, the scene in the first issue, I think it was the first issue of Dark Knight's Metal, where the League are on uh, Mongol's war world, and they somehow end up transforming into this Voltron-type mech, and Hal is the crotch. Yeah, let it never be said that uh, Cyborg and Batman, who I'm pretty sure built that mech, don't have a sense of humor uh, about, <laughs> you know, the fact that Hal is and always will be uh, you know, the crotch the, of a giant robot. The swinging dick of the Justice League. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that they try to make him... Jeff Johns tried to make him a little less of a cad, but still someone who doesn't... isn't really good with relationships. Grant Morrison absolutely is leaning into the fact that Hal is kind of a cad in his take on uh, Green Lantern in his Green Lantern series. I mean, that is very much hardcore 
space cop with, with the hard P at the end, policing the absurd across the multiverse. Oh, and just so, you know, don't at me, folks. I was incorrect. Phil Morris was not in today's episode of Superhero Girls. It was the other great DC animated voice actor, Phil. It was Phil Lamar. Ah. <laughs> two, two great Phils that... Phil great are... together. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Um, you mentioned Green Arrow, and Green Arrow is in this, and Adam Strange is in this. But the question uh, that I put to you uh, is, why are they in this? Because they show up at the end for the final showdown with the center, but they get zero, no dialogue and don't really do anything. I mean, yeah, okay, they do a little pew-pew with the guns and the arrows and what have you. But it, it's kind of like, it reminded me of watching G.I. Joe the movie, the, the 1986 or whatever year it came out, uh, animated classic, not the live-action one where Joseph Gordon-Levitt is Cobra Commander, like that could happen. And, and, you know, you just draw in every Joe that ever existed, even though most of them don't get, you know, dialogue or, or an arc or anything like that. But, you know, the difference between the two is G.I. Joe the movie was made to sell toys. It was a two-hour toy commercial with co- toy commercials uh, within it. Uh, you know, although, I mean, I'm pretty sure there actually is a line of, of New Frontier inspired action figures, but I mean, that came later. Uh, you know, you know what I mean? You know, where, you see where I'm going with this. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as I said, Adam Strange is there because he had a bigger part in the book and he was in that final sequence. And I'm sure that Darwin Cook wanted to keep Adam Strange in there as creative consultant. And I'm sure Bruce Tim wanted to keep him in there because he's got a cool visual. Yeah. And I think that's why the Blackhawks are there, too. And less so Green Arrow. I've never been a big fan of that, you know, golden into early Silver Age Green Arrow costume. But he does have an arrow plane. It reminded uh, me of Brave and the Bold, because that's, that's that same costume. Yes, absolutely. And that's... But I don't... Other than they were in the book, they wanted to animate them. I think that might have mostly to do with the fact that the guys animating this were fans. Mm-hmm. They wanted to feature those characters that don't get a lot of play that were in the book because they look cool and they animate cool. So, hell, let's run with it. Adam Strange really is a, a uh, comic creator, comic creator's comic character. You know what I mean? Well, like he's one of those guys like you go to D.C. Who, who do you want? Who do you want for your 12 issue prestige format miniseries? I want to do Adam Strange. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at the if you look at the history of Adam Strange stories, he tends to get a lot of like the the last Adam Strange solo title titled Adam Strange mm-hmm. was an eight issue miniseries from Andy Diggle and Pasquale Ferry. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Um, but then aside, they, you know, they tried to sort of make Adam Strange happen coming out of 52. Right. And it, it led to, a, you know, a bunch of stories that are that are perfectly OK. But there's the the Adam Strange uh, Man of Two Worlds mini the three issue prestige format from the late 80s from a writer whose name is eluding me. But early art from Andy Kubert. Ooh. I mean, you, yeah. You've got a lot of really solid creators who've worked on Adam Strange because you can go crazy. Uh, the Wednesday comics, which I just wrote about last week for uh, our COVID-19 sort of advent calendar project, it was Paul Pope. 
I mean, mm-hmm. Paul Pope is the, you know, one of those modern creators who does his own thing. And boy, howdy, when you look at that book, this is a creator who's just like, yeah, I want the aliens he's fighting to be space baboons. <laughs> I'm just going to have him fight, you know, baboons are the ones with the big, the big noses and the crazy butts, right? <laughs> yes, the craziest yeah. butts. <laughs> yes, yep, they're space baboons. He's fighting a race of warrior space baboons because why not? And his stuff, his Adam Strange was very much uh, a take on uh, the John Carter of Mars stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alana, his wife, is is Deja Thoris. I mean, they've got the you know skimpy Deja Thoris outfit going for her. Mm-hmm. It's it's it allows you to sort of take these concepts and do really crazy things, and that's cool. I mean, why not? He's the, a man of two worlds who travels from Earth to an alien planet via magical teleport beams. Not magical, they're science, but right. they're, they're magic. I mean, right. let's be fair. Any, what's the Arthur C. Clarke, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Zeta beams, it's magic. They're also boom tubes, basically. Yeah, yeah. A- a- but that's they- a different pilot podcast. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's the the main thing I, I think adam strange is there because the animators wanted to animate adam strange yeah and and, and just so it doesn't sound like i'm shitting on adam strange tom king mitch garrett's and, and doc shaner's uh first issue uh the one that came out of uh uh strange adventures was very good and i look forward to one day reading the second which was supposed to come out within the past couple of weeks, but we all know why it wasn't moving on. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk about voice work because so much of animation, uh, obviously is voice work and it's always fun to pull, you know, try and, and, and guess who's doing different roles, uh, especially when it's, it's noticeable. Um, so I started with, I'm going to, I'm going to start with the bad in this one. Um, Jeremy Sisto, not a great Batman. Uh, now, granted, you know, as men of a certain age, we were weaned on on the dulcet tones of, of Kevin Conroy, who uh, DC was kind enough to uh, film for their Instagram recently, reading the new uh, Batman Adventures comic uh, that's out digital first. Uh, but there have been plenty of other Batman voice actors over the years. Uh, you know, uh, Troy Baker and such, uh, you know, filling in uh, after after Conroy left. Dietrich Bader. Dietrich Bader. Bader Dietrich from Bader's fantastic. New Frontier. And uh, not new, from Brave and the Bold. Yeah. And uh, Bruce Greenwood, who has voiced him in uh, Young Justice and a couple of the DC animated projects. And I am trying to remember, and it is killing me. They've had one guy voicing him in all of the DC animated universe that sort of linked stories, the ones, you know, Justice League War and Justice League Dark and Throne of Atlantis and the Teen Titans and the Batman versus Robin, the ones that are sort of doing the new 52. And it's, oh, it's Jason O'Mara. That's who it is. Okay, my, 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 my took me a minute there of rambling before my brain connected who it was. Mm. But yeah, Omara and Greenwood have done fine work. They're, they're not Kevin Conroy, but, you know, Kevin who Conroy. <laughs> right, Kevin Conroy. The Batman, the animated series voices for people of a certain age 
are going to be the definitive takes on those characters. And no one who came up on... I mean, Conroy has been voicing Batman for... 30 years, roughly. Yeah, we're, we're getting... We're two years away from 30 years. But Sisto's performance is pretty flat. It's a wrong-sounding Muppet. Yes. It's it's Gambit in the last season of X-Men. Oh, oh boy, yeah. That's a... That's a take. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> it, it's... Oh, boy. Yeah, it's just weird hearing that. It's... You know, and the thing is, like... The gravel is there, but the octave is off. Like it's not high pitched, but like the low, the low end is missing. And he's not as menacing as like. There's a moment where he has with Martian Manhunter, where he delivers this line about, you know, I have a seventy-eight thousand dollar piece of meteor to take out the one in Metropolis, and for you. All you need is a penny for a book of matches. That's a badass line. It's a badass line. But his delivery of it is kind of flat. And it's not as scary as it should be. Like, I can hear Conroy or Greenwood deliver that line. It's like, ooh, yeah. You get goose flesh. And for him, it was like, okay, (laughs) that was a line. You delivered a line reading. You did. There's a joke in Pinky and the Brain where they're talking about Abraham Lincoln and they say that he sounds like Tony Danza. <laughs> I think that's what this is. <laughs> yeah. Just without the hard Italian accent. It's just it's just <laughs> not the voice that you expect to come out of this person. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I, I absolutely yeah, I can I can see where you're coming from. And I mean, this is one of the lower echelon of Batman voices that I have seen in animation. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about a voice that works. A voice that like I would not have picked this actor for this role, but seeing it and hearing it together, holy shit, it, it it's a revelation. Kyle McLaughlin as Superman. Excellent. So good. Great really good i wish that they could get some project where he could voice superman again it would it would be fantastic now like here's another one tim daly voice of superman for for many years he it was him for he he did superman for three or four and then george newburn did him did they transitioned to george newburn for justice league okay but they, they each both had three or four years of superman but, you know, again, to the point where, I, you know, I feel like, you know, the first voice I think of is Tim Daly. But yeah. it doesn't mean other people can't do the character. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and I think for this version of Superman, this this post-Golden Age version, I mean, he even still has the black in, in the, the chest S uh, thing going on. He's meant to be an older, inspirational figure to, you know, this new generation of heroes that's coming up. So he gives Clark this this weight, this gravitas that an Earth figure like Superman needs, even among other heroes. So like when he gives his his big damn hero speech toward the end, when he's got like it's the the scene where Barry gets to the military base and everybody's got their guns drawn on him, and Superman just claps and he gives a speech where like we all need to work together, and he shakes Faraday's hand. Like I got chills, man. Like that's good shit right there. It's real, so, and again that that scene, the, the both the speech and that clap and the the eyes, and that is right out of the comic. And Cook 
that was one of those Cook gave him that pitch right across the plate. And, you know, you could have missed it, but no, McLaughlin just takes that pitch and, like, bam, hits it right out of the park. He he so often is, is like, the best part of the things he is in. And it's, it's interesting because you don't picture him for Superman because he usually plays, you know, as a guy who's known for Dune and Dale Cooper. Mm-hmm. You don't picture him as or the captain on How I Met Your Mother. Right, yeah. He is not the actor who you picture for Superman, but he's got a great vocal range. And I, I wonder, I can't think of a lo- of any other animation that I've seen him do, but it makes me wish that there was more because I think he has a really quality voice for it. He was the dad of the, the the girl in Inside Out. You know, the Pixar movie? Yes! Yeah. Oh, and apparently he had a cameo in the final episode of Gravity Falls, which, if you've never watched, is one of my favorite animated series of all time. <laughs> uh, I love that you have IMDb rip, ripped up and ready to go. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're doing this, and after the, 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 the Phil Morris stumble, it's like, okay, I, I've got to have IMDb ready because I, I don't want to make another another you know stumble all right he was uh mr hyde in agents of shield he was pretty good oh yeah that's right yeah comic McLaughlin is the best guys he is uh, he's, he's really great but 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 let's move on before this turns into the comic McLaughlin power hour uh <laughs> the the next uh piece of voice casting that i thought worked really well was uh lucy lawless as wonder woman now, you hear that, you hear Lucy Lawless is voicing Wonder Woman, you think, well, that's a bit on the nose, isn't it? Getting Xena to do Wonder Woman? But I think it works for the version of Wonder Woman that is presented in this movie. Because, again, we're talking about a Golden Age hero who is now transitioning to the Silver Age. And part of, one of the themes of this movie is heroes growing increasingly dissatisfied with the government that they stood side by side with in World War II. So when we meet Wonder Woman in this movie, she's in a Vietnamese village where she liberated the women who were being held captive. Uh, and she, you know, frees them all. She gives them access to the guns of their captors. And when we meet her, she and these women are, are celebrating, you know, when Superman come, comes in and he's like you know, what, what the hell is going on here? And she's like, "Mm -mm -mm, you take that patriarchal garbage and you get the hell out of here. This is, this is a, this is more the zero fucks warrior queen than the golden voice of compassion that we get from a Gal Gadot or, you know, the version that's portrayed uh, so often in the comics. Uh, You know, she's a wonder woman who's weary from the broken promises of America, you know, her adoptive homeland and she basically wonders if she made a mistake, you know, hitching her tiara star to the U.S. wagon. This is a, the Wonder Woman I think we're going to see if we ever get those Generations one-shots. The, the one, a similar version is going to be there. The Wonder Woman who was the hero in the Golden Age, mm-hmm. who if you see bits of the timeline that was shown behind uh Dan Didio at one point or other, that she leaves America after America bombs uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This is a, that is a disillusioned Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I also have to say the they animate Darwin Cook's design and take on Wonder Woman, and it is a singular visual for Wonder Woman, and it is tremendous. It she's, is. She's bigger than Superman. She's taller than Superman. She's broader than Superman. She. It, it's big bar. It's it's the design you usually get for big Barda. Like Wonder Woman is is tough and usually muscular, but muscular in more of a dancery kind of way. This is a Wonder Woman who is just huge, and it works oh, yeah. so well. No, no, I one hundred percent here for it. Yes, that that scene you're talking about when she walks up to Clark, she's got a couple inches on him. She sure does. And it's it's great. She's looking – she's not quite tall enough to be looking down on him, but she is more than eye-to-eye with Superman, and it is perfect. Yeah. Definitely rocking. Yeah. Um, a couple of the voices that I want to call out, um, Neil Patrick Harris uh, voices Barry Allen. And while Barry doesn't get as much screen time as either uh, Jean or uh, Hal Jordan, he is one of the foundational characters of the Silver Age of comics. He is the first, the hero that is sort of DC's first Silver Age hero. Although I'm pretty sure Martian Manhunter predates him by a little bit. But Jean was sort of a backup hero versus, you know, Hal, Hal, Barry, who was a featured hero. And while, you know, uh, David Boreanaz gives Hal Jordan that cocky swagger, Neil Patrick Harris absolutely gives Barry Allen the the golly geez shucks sort of thing that was very, very much Barry Allen's personality until the Flash TV series and Jeff Johns sort of gave him more of Wally's personality. Barry was always the squarest square to ever be a square (laughs) i mean he had a flat top crew cut because that's how square barry allen was but was also a sweet good good guy and neil patrick harris captures that especially in the speech that he has to give uh you know about quitting being a hero because he doesn't want to endanger the people around him it's a very uh it's a very Peter Parker moment. Yes. I, I can I can see where you're coming from on that. It, it's it, he's he re, and he also but he also he also has a couple of great you know little laugh lines. Uh, he makes a, a shot at Gorilla Grodd, which is it, it turns out to be a Robo Grodd, but but still it's a Grodd. And and that's a great line. I, I really I like the way Harris voices uh, voices Barry very much. And I, I think we've lost that aspect of Barry Allen in modern stories. He's a lot less square and a lot more haunted because I guess, you know, you can't have somebody headline a modern comic and be that much of a, lawful good 
sweet kind of guy. But they get that here very much. Mm -hmm. And remember, he's still earlier in his career. He doesn't have 70 years of continuity and speed force nonsense weighing him down. Yeah. At this point, he's just a guy who runs fast and fights gorillas. Right. And this is a Barry who's does not have the the uh, origin alteration. His mother has isn't dead. That was mm-hmm. Jeff Johns who gave him that dark origin. That sounds right. In the in the in the original Silver Age, Barry Allen became a superhero because he liked old Flash comics and wanted to help people. That's it. The that purest the, of reasons. The purest of reasons for Barry Allen to be a hero. And I'm I will always have a problem with adding the tragedy to his origin because I don't think he needed it. There are heroes who absolutely that the tragedy is part of who they are. Batman, Martian Manhunter, Superman to a certain degree, but Barry never needed that. Hmm. And Jeff Johns is second only to Walt Disney in liking to kill the parents of his <laughs> protagonists. Uh, also, a shout out to the late great Miguel Ferrer, who voiced uh, Jean Jones. Uh, I, I love Miguel Ferrer, and while he doesn't isn't quite the the Carl Lumbly Justice League, uh, who is again the voice I hear for Martian Manhunter. He does a really good job of giving Jean layers and does a really good job as John Jones. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously you've got the IMD B up, but I'm pretty sure you knew this anyway. Ferrer's got a, a bit of a history with doing DC voice work, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Uh, he, his last work was as Deathstroke in uh, Teen Titans, The Judas Contract. No. Oh. Uh, some other stuff has come up, you know, that was filmed before that has come out since, but the last project he was working on before he passed was he was Slade. Uh, he was also Vandal Savage on Young Justice. Mm. And it, not the, everything before, he was not, he passed before the most recent seasons. Right. Yeah. They did, I believe, dedicate the Vandal Savage episode from season three to uh, to him. And he goes back to even Superman the Animated Series. He was Weather Wizard, I believe. And I'm going to go and double check that. But I am not. Oh, no. He... Oh, yes. He was Weather Wizard. He was also Aquaman. Huh. I don't remember him. I, I remembered Aquaman. I didn't realize that it was Miguel Ferrer. Um, you know, I, I, I did get a kick out of Aquaman just sort of showing up at the last second. Uh, in this movie while we're on that subject. He's like, hey, I was hanging out underwater and I found this guy. Uh, he wants a Lois. Yeah, it's a great mo- And it's, again, right out of the the comic. But it is an, it's a great moment. It's like, okay, we're, we're you know throwing him in there at the last minute because he didn't have a place in the story. It didn't work. So let's, you know, just just bring him in for that, you know, final cameo so we have all the pieces are in place. Of course, we all know who I hear in my head when I hear Aquaman. <laughs> Outrageous. John DiMaggio. <laughs> oh yes. He is, he is 
he, he is the only Aquaman. <laughs> he, he is he is perfect. Um, uh, there um, just before we move away from voice actors, sure. Um, th- just a couple of quick shout outs uh, to the the marvelous Keith David as the voice of the center because he's Keith David and everything is better with Keith David. That is 100% true. Uh, I mean, uh, sadly they weren't given a ton to work with, but Kira Sedgwick and Brooke Shields do a, a solid job as both Lois and Carol Ferris respectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and James Arnold Taylor, there's a lot of, uh, you know, voice actory voice actors in this cast, one of whom is uh, James Arnold Taylor, who is the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi on The Clone Wars. He does a really good job as Captain Cold. This is pre-Flash TV series, but mm-hmm. there is still that winking snideness in his <laughs> snart that, you know, uh, Wentworth Miller takes to the nth degree. And... Uh, a cameo from Joe Montaigne as the crooner that Iris West is interviewing. I knew because it was Joe Montaigne. I'm that, like, is that, yep. it's like, it's like, is that Fat Tony doing Dean Martin? What's happening right now? That is absolutely Fat Tony doing Dean Martin. I, I, I was pretty sure it was, and I looked it up at the time. I was like, yep, that's, that's, that's the man. <laughs> ah, good stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, any other any other points that uh, we wanted to touch on here? I think going through the list, I think we uh, pretty much nailed everything. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we have gotten we. Um, yeah, I mean, short of uh, it, it every time I see Darwin Cook work, it just I, I wish that he had had a little more time to do a little more. Yeah, well, at some point, I got to track down the first half of this uh, series in trade. Yeah, because it, it is well well worth it. From a physical comic shop. Yes. Keep beating that dead horse until this is all over. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we've had a lot of fun. But uh, that that's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ Presents on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ Presents and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, the ability to promote your work on our site, and a customized bonus reading column written by uh, Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. And a $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. Uh, big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones Podcast, Robert Secundus from Docs Talks at XavierFiles.com, Scott Marzinski from MojoWorks.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's recently debuted Spider-Woman series, and Saren. Uh, you can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote. And me at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox, plus sneak peeks at what's ahead and an early look at our weekly editorial. Finally, and most importantly, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plan all views. And we'll see you next week with another pilot podcast we're calling For the Children! Oh, hello there. You caught me in the middle of catching some crawdads. 
Mmm, I just love these here mud bugs. Yes, sir, I do. But you know what else I love? That there good comics coverage at WMQComics.com. It's them previews and reviews that just satisfy my refined taste for comics coverage. Ooh-wee, I just got me another one. Me and Big Mama gonna be eating fine tonight, yes sir. But before I throw these here critters in the pot, remember, WMQ Comics is a place to go for your comics coverage. Tell them Willie sent you.